Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Tim Spector. Tim is a professor of genetic epidemiology and director of the Twins UK Registry at King's College in London. He is also the author of several science books, including The Diet Myth, The Real Science Behind What We Eat, and his forthcoming book called Spoonfed. Tim, thank you so much for coming on for an episode for today. Pleasure. So, Looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be speaking, at, well, you're going to be speaking, I'm just going to be at the event, but you're, you're going to be um, at the Biohacking Congress in February next month. We're in January at the moment. So I'm looking forward to getting to meet you in person, listen to your, um, your talks there. But today I want to get into your studies and you know your profession, which is genetics, um, the microbiome and food and the relationship between those two things. So my first question for you is with your um, last published book, which was The Diet Myth, um, what, what did you mean by the word or the phrase, the diet myth? It was a suitably vague term to encompass all of the problems um, that we've got in uh, really understanding diets and many of the myths and false beliefs around them. Uh, and so starting to piece together the problems that we've had with uh, our failure to effectively diet, despite uh, consistent advice for the last 30 years about calories and reducing fat and exercising more uh, and putting into place why that advice has failed and basically trying to bring all those uh, elements together with the new science behind this new organ in our bodies, uh, the gut microbiome, which is a way of explaining why we've got it so wrong because we've really underestimated the complexity of food and uh, our whole way of our whole body's metabolism and so we've just been focusing really a little bit on genetics in the past and these calories and macronutrients and treating it a bit like just a pure energy thing uh, without really going into detail about the complexity of foods and how they interact with our body and how they interact with uh, these gut microbes which is very much a a cutting-edge new science and so it was uh, you know, coming up with one word to describe that that complexity was very difficult, uh, but the diet myths seemed to work uh, because, you know, I think most people can associate with the fact that uh, 99% of diets fail, and therefore, in a way, just that the word diet uh, is a myth itself, really, in terms we shouldn't be doing these short-term dieting things because long-term they 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 are a myth. They just don't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you encompass encompass that quite well because you know this whole program is all about individuality, biohacking, n equals one kind of stuff. And I think we have guidelines, but as it sounds like, even when it comes to our relationship with food, and you know if it makes us gain weight or lose weight, it sounds like there's an individuality according to our microbiome or our genetics too that brings a big influence into this factor. Yes, and and I, I mean, I, I for the last twenty five years I've been working with um, these 
13,000 twins in our registry and been fascinated by, you know, how similar or dissimilar identical twins are and nature v. nurture. And as time has gone on, I've been more interested in the, in the differences between identical twins because they're genetic clones. And so they should be pretty much identical for everything. And they're 100% identical for their genes in every cell of their body. Um, and it turns out their microbes are really not that similar. And that probably explains why they don't die of the same diseases. Um, they Obviously, environment has a role, but if your genes are identical, then uh, something else had to be going on. And I think that that was, for me, one of the big sort of discoveries uh, of the last uh, five years was uh, seeing this difference in identical twins explain why they rarely both get the same cancer. They both don't die at the same time. Uh, autoimmune diseases are really quite rare in both of them. Um, things that didn't sort of fit with the the standard paradigm of, um, well, once we've understood this, then you know it's all going to be simple. Uh, and I think the underlying importance genes are undoubtedly important. And uh, you know, as a geneticist, I'm not going to knock genes too much. And they really account for 50% of just about everything uh, in in our makeup and um, even behaviors and, and other things. But I think we've perhaps overestimated the power of genetics at an individual level. So at a population level, it's fine. And you can do these genetic tests, which, you know, we can find genes for all kinds of things, whether it's how long you can exercise or um, whether you can uh, process coffee well or uh, how long you sleep. But actually converting that into an individual prediction has proven to be pretty impossible. Um, and a lot of you know companies out there are misleading people because they're taking the population result and trying to give it to an individual where it really doesn't work at all. And so with this background of, yes, genetic genes are important, perhaps 50% of what's going on, I was interested to see, well, what about microbes? And, and the other, when you compare two people, we we generally share about 99.6% uh, of our DNA. Um, and we're all uh, roughly fifth cousins. Um, but if you go to our gut microbes, we're only sharing, you know, on average, around a quarter of our gut microbes with each other. And identical twins only share slightly more than that. They share about 30%. So clearly, you know, we're seeing these vast differences. And if we believe in the power of the microbiome, then that explains this individuality that we have in our responses to the environment, even if we've got the same genes. So in people who aren't identical twins, obviously you've got some genetic differences which which will affect both behaviors and how your body works. And then at a second level, you've got these um, uh, thousands of genes that are contained in the gut microbes that are in response to that, it can produce all kinds of different chemicals. So to put in context, um, you know, we have around 23,000 human genes, and we think there is somewhere between 100 and 200 times more microbial genes that are really sitting there like a sort of extra power pack in our guts, uh, able to, uh, at will, 
you know, produce different chemical proteins, hormones, vitamins, uh, messengers for the brain, for the immune system, and allow us to eat, digest food in different ways and make us hungry or, uh, or depressed or, you know, or sad. So, you know, it's this treasure trove of other genes we've got there, like an accessory pouch that gives us this amazing individuality. And that's really, um, you know, what my research has been focusing on in, in the last uh, couple of years, teasing out this differences between people and, and moving away from the idea that most science, particularly in the field of nutrition, has focused on averages, been obsessed with um, guidelines, we're obsessed with rules that um, the average female needs 2,000 calories, the average male 2,500, and that we should have X units of alcohol every day, and that we do, you know, 30 minutes of exercise, or and and we should have, you know, exactly this percentage of fat, um, and we should have no more than 10% saturated fat, uh, and it's complete nonsense. Um, it's just there really to make governments feel that they're doing something, that they've got a plan, um, and they can set some nutrition guidelines, which were there really since the war to stop people falling off the other end of nutritional deficiencies. So that's why we had this whole history of being told what to eat was really after the war when there was a lot of uh, vitamin deficiency in, in many countries in the world, and these are the sort of minimum amounts to, to you know get ch keep get children to adulthood and to uh, stop people getting all kinds of uh, deficiency diseases. And we're stuck with this mentality that's in fact making us fat because you know nobody is really uh, conforms to these average guidelines. And you know when you think about these sort of nutritional guidelines that um, are passed out, it, you know, you wouldn't have um, one type of car seat or uh, shoe that all males and all females uh, were told to uh, use. You know, just at the basic, you know, physical side, we you know it, it wouldn't be comfortable for us. Hardly anyone would fit this perfect average uh, measurement. And so that's what we've been asked to do with nutrition, particularly. And it's been a disaster. Uh, and people have failed to, to look in it. And it's only really the last year or two, really, that I think people are starting to wake up to think that when you look in trials, you do see much more when you look at individual responses than you do look at the averages. But um, I'm probably preaching to the converted here that, um, that, you know, the power of the individual. But this is very much where my research is going. And, um, uh, and of course, this is uh, since writing the book, you know, um, we've actually gone out and done some of these intervention studies in the twins now uh, using diet. Yeah, and um, that's, that's fascinating um, just because – what what you're saying there too, I can only imagine the difficulties now where we have these guidelines, but then how do we get to the individual level there at a mass population um, control? I mean, are we going to 
is I'm just thinking in the UK, is a GP going to have a simple test that they could give you and say, hey, it looks like you're on this track, so watch out? Or, you know, I don't know. Can, do you think they're going, they're going to be able to help people at that level? Or is it? Well, I think, I mean, a, a good example, I mean, I think one of the best recent examples of a, a trial that showed this is the um, the diet fit study, which was uh, one of the largest randomized controlled trials done of overweight Americans. Six hundred nine Californians took part in this study, and they were given uh, a healthy diet to start with. So, so what most of these other things haven't done is they were well, given plenty of fruits and vegetables, um, made sure they had plenty of fiber, you know, reasonably balanced. Uh, advice that everyone would agree with uh, and then they were allocated to be either a, a low fat diet or a low carb diet for a year and this was supposed to solve all this big debate um, and after a year the results were a complete were a draw now, there was no difference between the two groups and so a lot of people were very upset <laughs> on both camps who wanted a, a, a clear result um, but when you look at the individual data, and uh, that's what we're doing now with the, the authors of that study, uh, Christopher Gardner in Stanford, you see huge differences within each arm. So some people um, lost 25 kilos in weight in a year. Uh, other people gained 10 kilos. And that was this, didn't matter which group they were in where they've been allocated the fat or they've been allocated the carbs. So if you reversed those, um, you'd get ama you know, amazing results for probably both um, types of regime because it's clear that some people process fats much better than they do uh, carbs and, the, uh, and vice versa. And so the, the key is, you know, can you come up with some simple test that would, once you've given someone a basic, healthy advice can then point them in the direction of saying well you know what you should be having yogurt for breakfast or no you should be having uh, muesli um, something very simple like that uh, over years can make a huge difference uh, to everybody so that's what we're uh, we're trying to do and we've we've been teaming up with a, um, a startup company called zoe uh, that have that funded this predict study this the largest interventional study, nutrition study done so far in the world, where we're taking a thousand people from the UK and a thousand people in the US, and most of the UK ones are twins. And we've just uh, finished analyzing the, the UK arm of this, uh, and it should be out, out published soon. Um, basically, showing firstly an eightfold variation when people were given a standard meal. In their, in their glucose, their insulin, and their uh, blood fats. So, you know, that's, for a start, wow, I was pretty blown away by that fact that normal people, when you're given a standard muffin, will have this huge rises in some people and really flat lines in others, meaning some people are having a lot of metabolic stress when they're having that meal, others nothing at all. And we know that if you magnify that, out to several years, you see differences in weight gain, diabetes, heart disease. And so our aim is to get thousands of people doing uh, these experiments where they have these standardized meals, 
and we relate that to their baseline bloods and their gut microbes at the beginning. And we put these into algorithms, uh, machine learning algorithms, and you come up with a prediction model for everybody that will say, based on this, we can give you a score for your um, blood fats, your um, uh, how you respond to, to sugars, and the state of your gut microbiome. And we can now give you, through an, an app on your phone, give you your food scores. So you can look up any food, you can barcode it, and you can say, okay, this this is 60% good for me, but you know com- that beats this one at 30%, which might be very different for you. And so the idea is that people will, will get a, a general idea about whether they should be eating more fats or more carbs. And then if they want to, they can get um, more specific personalized advice through uh, an app. And the idea, you know, what we'd like is that millions of people use this. Um, and whilst we're, you know, other people are also developing other quicker tests that, as you said, could be done just by the GP. But I think food is such a complex uh, and common event that I think we have to take this into our own hands. I don't think GPs um, and the medical profession, A, A, know enough about it, and and B, there are enough of them with enough time to advise people. So I think this is something that really has got to go direct to consumer um, first. And people will, you know, as they're doing with many internet tests, um, they're downloading apps, health advice on exercise, Fitbit. I see it really more like that than being totally driven by the medical profession. Uh, partly because you know, the medical profession is extremely poorly equipped to deal with this. And as a medic, I can say how badly uh, I was taught and how my colleagues are taught and how they still lack any basic uh, knowledge about uh, nutrition, just having had a couple of hours at medical school 20 years before. Mm-hmm. So I think people have got to get the information themselves. They've got to learn about how important food is, the complexity of it, and in a way, do their own experiments. And I think that's the crucial thing, not be led by somebody who say, listen, this is the standard meal that if everyone eats, they'll get, they'll be healthy and, and skinny. That ain't going to work ever. Um, you know, there is some general advice. It's not saying throw out all advice. Nobody's advising ultra processed foods, um, apart from the food manufacturers. Um, and, um, you know, we all need more fiber. We need more plants and vegetables. We need to snack less. Um, but, once you've done that, then you know some form of self-experimentation to work out what suits you. Also, the other fascinating thing of this this the predict study is that we were able to compare the influence of genetics versus the influence of the uh, gut microbes and and other f- factors about the individual. And it turns out that genetics are really uh, they have a they affect about thirty percent of your sugar responses. Which you'd sort of expect from the um, the data on diabetes and obesity, um, which was slightly more than the microbiome, um, uh, but individual factors were actually a larger component of it than just genetics. Which so non-genetic things related to the individual, 
And the, when we got to fats, we saw a completely different picture. Basically, genetics had nothing to do with how you quickly you broke down the fats in your blood after you'd had a fatty meal. Um, and which is strange because we know that genetics are interested, important in what the blood levels are, but in that's long term. But short term, these fatty responses, which can cause inflammation and heart disease, if it, these bits of fat are hanging around for six hours after a meal, which in some people they were, and other people they were cleared immediately. Uh, microbes are really important in that, and um, you know whether you had the right set of microbes or not made a huge difference to whether you know that you could dispose of that amount of fat easily or not. And to my, that was really exciting. But the other exciting bit was also these areas which we've really, no one's really touched is uh, circadian rhythms, time of day, um, uh, what you had as your previous meal, how long you've been fasting for, um, and other sort of bits about the person we don't yet know. But I think how you eat is, might be also as important as what you eat. So all these components together make up how we respond to food, which is entirely individualistic and totally explains these eightfold differences in food responses in normal people. So, but I'm really optimistic because if everything was genetic, we wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Just sit at home, get fat and blame our parents. <laughs> so um, the fact we can manipulate you know, we can determine things like, is it best to have my breakfast, you know, early in the morning, uh, you know, near lunch or not at all? Or or should I, you know, have am I, my circadian rhythm means I should be eating most of my calories later or earlier? The fact that we can use diet to manipulate our microbes is also, you know, really optimistic. So I think what, you know, what we're, we're finding out is great. Yeah. And so it sounds like the, it kind of looks like we'd have to stack lots of different uh, results potentially here. So have a genetic test as a base. Then you, then you might do a microbiome test. Um, I don't know if there's any value in that. And then you might stack on some lab results. So you'd look at you know, your different bloods and whatever, and you collate that all together. Uh, and maybe even add in some real-time data like a continuous glucose meter or something else. And... And then subjective things is just how do you feel or do you notice any other change in symptoms? And you kind of need to put all of that together to truly know what works best for you. Yes, well, that's that's what we've done in these in these studies of these two thousand people. So they had glucose monitors for two weeks. They had were pricking their fingers for fats every few every few days. We had exercise monitors. We had sleep monitors. Um, we. They were logging all their foods uh, every every hour uh, through the app. Um, so, and then we had all these baseline bloods, and we had the they had a day in the in the hospital where we collected all the bloods after these standard meals where they you know couldn't move or anything. So, we got the most information we could possible on these um, these individuals. Uh, including their genetics as well, uh, and the fact they were twins, we were able to look at the effect of nature v nurture. So, uh, and then the question is, well, that's in a sort of experimental situation because you you couldn't afford to do that on everybody in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so then you, 
So now we're we're piloting this the uh, home version of it. So you you see well how well do we do just by sending the kits and the standard muffins to people at home with with the glue and see if they can you know put all these uh, digital wearables on the, on themselves and log their food without actually seeing anyone physically. And that seems to be working very well. Um, and they, they do have to get a blood test and send it off and the stool sample and send that off. But you can do it all from home. So I think there's, as you said, there's various levels of this. And what we're trying to see is what is the most crucial information that isn't so expensive that no one will be able to afford to do it? How can we compress this into something that nearly everybody can do? And the idea is that um, we've got these different levels of things. and the first thing that we're uh, we're going to run out in uh, in the U.S. in about a month's time is a, a free app. Um, so people will be able to download the app, uh, put in blood results they might have already, because most people in the U.S. are getting regular health checks, and um, you know everyone loves to measure your cholesterol in the U.S. and um, and other and other parameters. So you put those in, and your blood sugar. You put those into the model, and other bits about yourself, and it will give you a, a rough personalization uh, because you can use your results with the thousands of people who already collected to get a rough idea uh, without spending any money. And uh, we want people to play with that and feedback on that sort of beta version. And then as you get more tests or spend more money, then you get a better accuracy because, as you've said, the more things you put in the model, the more you're going to be able to predict how you will respond to all these different foods. Mm. Uh, and I think it's and the, it's not something that's going to be solved ever, I don't think. It's going to be evolving. So what we're, we're doing is we're setting up a system that the more data we get, the better it will be for everybody and the more complex the meals will be able to sort out, um, which you know is going to be tough when you're only up to 10,000 people to sort out very complicated uh, mixed food meals that, you know, someone would have with beers and other things, you know, how do you work that out? But once you get to a million people, that should be very easily solvable. So it's, it's all scalable, really. Mm -hmm. And if everyone is happy and the, um, the model we're using with the PREDICT studies is that everybody is happy to contribute their data, to these algorithms that can be used to inform everybody. So um, although you get your own personalized results which aren't of use to anyone else, you're getting this the, the variation and how everyone, you know, their microbes relate to their food and their glucose levels, et cetera, or their fat levels. That's uh, really important. So, you know, we're just at the start of a big voyage, if you like. Um, but this idea that we're trying to build a community of um, citizen scientists that will help the community, but actually get something unusually get something very that's personal to them, I think it, it, it's quite an exciting concept. Because mm -hmm. um, you know you do have to input uh, a bit of time and energy to to get decent results for yourself. You know, logging food is not simple, even if you've got the best app in the world. Um, some of this is quite hard work. So, um, but I'm sure a lot of your, all the viewers here will um, be exactly the sort of people that you know would be keen to find out more about themselves. And 
and see, you know, and and so f- the first thousand people we give the results to are, are very excited because, uh, and they like doing the studies because of this feeling that they're, you know, the results will be very specific to them. Uh, it's not just a general trial. Yes, it worked. No, it didn't. Um, the idea is that this individualization, and I think this is a really good model going forward of many things we might be doing in medicine as well as health and wealth well-being mm-hmm. yeah and i think especially in healthcare it's always you know the patient wants to be heard and feel that they're being heard and in this case here if they go oh, i think i eat this and i think it's causing my inflammation um sort of like the gut feel as a pun intended <laughs> um that it's these, you know, this it sounds exciting when the science is coming out to validate that yes or no, like actually your subjective feeling, your gut feel that this is a problem for you. We can actually try zone that in and tell you a little bit more uh, definitively. Yes, you are on the right track or no, don't worry about it. So it, it sounds yeah. very exciting. And people like to compare themselves as well to see how they are on, you know, how are they ranking, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and obviously, nearly everyone can always do better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very few people have perfect microbes, perfect, uh, you know, sugar and perfect fat responses. So, um, you know, and also, you know, with age. So, you know, you may have to retest yourself because, um, you know, you may be fine at 30, but, at, you know, what, realizing you may have a potential problem when you're you're 50, when you know, all these diseases start to happen, that's also useful to know. So, um, yeah, it, you know, it, it, it's super fun. So we're, we're ex- every time we look at this, uh, we've got so much data from this, just this one study that, that, you know, it really would last a lifetime. We've already got about, you know, 100 scientists working on, on this data. You know, um, just to give you a few other things that, you know, we're finding. Um, some people complain of having sugar dips. Have you heard of this this idea that you sort of some people quite say they're sensitive to to carbs or either because they haven't had any and they feel like oh desperate for a biscuit at eleven o'clock in the morning, uh, which is usually a very British um, uh, type of problem. I don't know about South Africa, but I guess it's probably similar that uh, you you know this morning something with your morning coffee you had to have something which. You don't get in the rest of Europe, by the way. It's very much a cultural thing. Um, but other people who might have a carb and then um, get a little high, and then just after it, they get a dip and they get an energy dip. We thought this was nonsense. I did, anyway. Uh, but we started to see this with people in their glucose monitors. They went below baseline. And um, we're getting some preliminary evidence that actually these people have increased appetite afterwards. and so. If you can work out, you know, who the person is who's dipping, then really, you know, you really want to avoid those uh, those snacks because there's, you know, they're going to a make you feel bad and b actually make you eat more. So I think we're finding out things that are going to be fascinating for many people. So they might have perfect scores, but some of these little tricks, every, you know, about when you should be eating and uh, the intervals between eating. I think it's all going to link in with this this new idea of restricted time eating and um, not not doing as we were told. You know, all of us were told grazing is the best way, avoid gorging, 
And it's looking increasingly like that. For most people, that's nonsense. Hmm. But it might be specifically important for some people and not others. And I I see that too with the trend in what's called OMAD. I don't know if you come across that one meal a day eating where people decide, they say that they feel much better if they just have that one big meal a day versus multiple meals in a day. Hmm. Yeah, well, generally uh, our ancestors were probably more like that um it would certainly be one or two um the concept of these three meals a day is quite recent but actually in the uk and the us most people have five meals a day or six because they are told to have healthy snacks um eat regularly so the body just doesn't get a chance to rest um and i think the latest data are you know, about say skipping breakfast are really coming out in favour that uh, it certainly doesn't do any harm as we were told in the past, and actually some people will benefit and lose weight. Um, and part of that is not just the calories, but the the fact that your your system is in a fasting state and actually metabolically that's better. And we now know that it's probably also helping your gut microbes. That the longer you give them to rest, the more the the sort of cleanup team of microbes come out at night and and help you out. Mm. So, you know, some some of these illusory bits of science are starting to come together. Um, but it's uh, it's a time when you know lots of old ideas are being thrown out, and uh, some of the ones which would have appeared wacky, like eating once a day, people have completely laughed at you a year ago, uh, well, five years ago. Um, you know, now sort of in study say yeah you know there could be a scientific basis for that Mm. um i think it's a bit extreme myself um you know uh, but i think as a concept you know it it could well suit some people Mm -hmm. and then yeah sorry and then the same thing with fasting too because i've i've seen that particularly in california where it's you know there's a um a lot of the, the science writers out there in the magazines, they go, oh, is this this crazy thing called it's intermittent fasting and are people just starving themselves and it's uh, eating disorder instead? Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's people say, no, I'm not, I don't have an eating disorder. I actually just feel so much better when I, when I follow a certain uh, eating schedule. Yeah, and I've, I've tried most of these things myself. And, um, uh, you know, I'm not, I have no real need to lose weight anymore. Um, I did lose about 10 kilos since I started research this about 10 years ago. Um, you know, when I realized, when I first started researching for the diet myth and understanding about microbes and health and whatever. So I, but now I will just feel like, um, you know, skipping breakfast, having a, an extended fast. And sometimes I've just carried it on until the evening. And, um, I, d- I do actually feel better for it. I mean, I've got to pick the day I do it because you've got to be busy. You don't want to be sitting, sitting at home next to the fridge when you do it. But um, yeah, no, uh, you know, uh, there is a certain buzz and it's also psychologically really important to realize that you don't die if uh, occasionally you don't eat for uh, a fair period of time because basically nearly every culture and religion in the world has had strict fasting rules and i think they did it not just for religion but it does bind people together makes them feel better and um also the the idea that psychologically trains you to not 
be obsessed with needing your biscuit at 11 o'clock or your uh, healthy granola bar or whatever it is, you know, you realize that, oh, I survived. It's amazing, you know, and, and yes, you, you learn to, well, this is a bit of hunger, but actually it didn't kill me and I, you go through it. So I'm not into excessive fasting. Definitely don't want to get people crazy about this, you know, just if people want to do it, just start with skipping breakfast, you know, uh, nothing more than that. But yeah, this whole concept, this modern idea that we should be snacking regularly and there's such a thing as a healthy snack, really nonsense because every time you're eating it, you're getting some little metabolic stress in your body, whether it's the insulin, whether it's the fats. You know, uh, I, I spent time with the Hadza tribe in uh, Tanzania. Um, a couple of years ago and um they're the last of the hunter gatherers in africa and probably were living the life that we were living a hundred thousand years ago and i tell you you know none of them was leaping up and cooking breakfast in the morning um you know they finished eating at about uh seven at night um and they would never eat anything before about 10 and 11 o'clock the next morning um and breakfast they didn't have a word for breakfast so i think it really is a modern concept and um we have to start rethinking it you know hey i love breakfast you know sometimes and um i wouldn't i wouldn't do without it but many people don't and i think again this is part of this individuality Mm -hmm. um and we just need to perhaps listen to our bodies more and not some government guidelines and it's interesting that too, because I'm just thinking now outside of just what you're saying there with the metabolic response, with the hormonal response, with insulin as an example, but how we could act, there's this other third party again, the microbiome and how that gets influenced with what we're doing here. And, and so the chain, even maybe it's thinking of this other person saying, well, if I fast, it does this to them and they do this to me. And that's the benefit I'm getting out of this or the detriment. Yes. Yeah. So that they haven't done sufficient studies in humans on fasting and the microbiome, but there's there's quite a lot of animal work being done, um, and they also show the microbes like us have a circadian rhythm. So virtually all uh, forms of life have a circadian rhythm, and in a way, this means there are resting periods and there are uh, periods of activity, um, and we know that when we don't eat overnight, um, a lot of our uh, microbes that are responsible for eating food disappear or die off, and other ones come out at night that um, uh, feed off the mucus, the sugary mucus in the lining of our gut. And these microbes like acomantia, and increasingly they they seem to be important in our health, uh, and that. Far from being flesh-eating microbes, which they are, I mean, they nibble away at our mucus, and that tidies up the gut lining. And we think this stabilizes the community very much. So it's like, you know, it's like if you never leave your desk, uh, it can never be cleaned up. It becomes over time a mess. And if you have clear periods, it can be tied up and clean and much more efficient. And that's really what we think is is happening here but if you're constantly snacking every um three hours your gut just doesn't get a chance to recover and we don't seem to get that 
that good community of microbes. So I think, you know, this, the idea that, uh, the old idea that fasting was all about some releasing some hormones or brain chemicals, and I think it's a bit too simplistic. It's, it's very much a, a complex arrangement that involves definitely the gut microbiome, um, which are probably the main drivers of all these things. Mm-hmm. And I can think of an, uh, another example here where um, I was just reading a Scientific American article about metformin or type 2 diabetes and how actually the efficiency of that is related to your microbiome. So they found that the metformin influences your microbiome. Um, and I, it's again, and they, they mentioned some other drugs there and how some other drugs actually were inefficient because of the microbiome eating the sugar on the drug. And so they've had to modify it to create the efficiencies. But it, again, it just brings this level of complexity into it. It's amazing. Yeah. So it, there have been some studies showing that at least half of the drugs tested uh, are influenced by our gut microbes. So, you know, we've always assumed that, you know, you take a painkiller and some people said, oh, I prefer paracetamol, Tylenol to uh, aspirin. Uh, and others say, oh, no, it doesn't work for me at all. Well, it, it's hi- highly likely it's your gut microbes that are converting one to the active form in some people and not in others. You know, they're probably responsible for uh, the effects of caffeine. Um, the, you know, to microbes, it doesn't matter whether it's a pharmaceutical chemical or it's one of the hundreds of chemicals in foods, whether it's in a banana or, you know, uh, they just treat them all the same. And they will try and break it down into nutrients and uh, use it in some way. They're this giants of recycling. Uh, place and so you know antidepressants are another really good example where responses are highly variable between people and some people just get no benefit at all from antidepressants others get it affects them a lot and they get sleepy or they get a lot of side effects and by manipulating the the gut microbes you can totally alter those influences um there's some great life or death examples at the moment where we're running a, a trial of immunotherapy and metastatic melanoma at the moment. Um, and uh, it's using these uh, new immunotherapy drugs, which have revolutionized uh, what was a totally fatal condition to have metastases and melanoma into uh, getting response rates of up to 50%. But depending on what your gut microbes are like at the beginning of the uh, chemotherapy, um, you have a fourfold chance of living or dying. So, uh, and that's not because the microbes interact with the tumor at all, but they interact with the drug, the immunotherapy drug, to allow it to work and um, be effective. And we're probably going to end up soon having everyone with cancer having. Um, uh, fecal poo transplants to or getting tested at least to maximize their ability of their body to deal with the drugs that can then kill off the cancer so you know that's the extreme example but then you go to the other end you know the chemicals in food or artificial sweeteners or um, uh, just a painkiller or you know whether you get addicted to opiates um, it starts to open up all these amazing um, uh, explanations for 
for the idiosyncrasies of humans. And yeah. all of them are modifiable. So it's actually fantastic. And, you know, this is why it's, I think, the most exciting thing in, in medicine and science at the moment. And I can especially think in cancer situations where, t- in one way, the patient feels disempowered because they got cancer and they have to go through this treatment. And it's, you know, chemotherapy, radiation therapy is for, um, a big blunt tool in one essence still. Um, but in this way, to actually know that there's potential to zone in even better and say, right, something as simple as your microbiome might not make it as efficient, this treatment. Let's do a protocol to boost that, to allow the chemotherapy to work even more efficiently in this case. That, I think that's very exciting. Yeah. I mean, already a lot of places in the US uh, in cancer centers are um, getting people to do give a, a stool sample before they start treatment and then because the treatment will often kill it off. They use antibiotics and other things that, and that, you know, for example, antibiotics are completely like fatal if you've got having immunotherapy. So that tells you something about the, uh, the importance of the microbes. Um, so it, it's becoming a standard of care to give a sample. And so all of us in the future are probably going to, when we're feeling healthy, you know, freeze a bit of our, our microbes. So we, at least get our own ones back when we need them rather than someone else's we don't trust. Oh, wow. So a stool bank. <laughs> yes. No, they already exist, but I think they're going to get more widespread. So, you know, uh, you know, women are now storing eggs. Um, you can get your, you know, embryonic uh, still stored. So, you know, what we need to do is pick the perfect moment when you're, uh, you've got your maximal uh, microbes and, and, and store them somewhere in a freezer. Yeah. So I'd like to just bring it back when you were talking about with your twins earlier and um, how they can be so diverse. So they say, you know, it's, it's not a genetic thing. It's a microbiome thing. When do you think that that split occurs? Is it from day one, from when they're born? They just have, they have the same genetics. They just don't have the same microbial influence from, from the day they're born, even though they came out at the same time. Um, the f- microbiome is different, different to genetics in the, um, you know, you, in genetics, you can get slight epigenetic changes that slightly tweak it, uh, the, the function of the genes. But uh, for the microbes, the first, it's very chaotic. The first three years of life, our microbiomes are all over the place. They're not stable. Every time you get a cold, they can change, introduce new foods, they totally change. And um, what we, we're seeing is, um, in all, in all kids, whether they're twins or not, a very unstable microbiome. And obviously, we think a lot of it is the influence of the mother and the, and the environment. Um, but a lot of it is these random effects that happen in early life to all of us. And even when you've got two twins, the one who gets the viral infection first can have a very different effect to the one who gets it a week later. Um, so we think that's just these random effects that are happening um, that in a way, outweigh the um, s- subtle genetic effects because there are still some genetic effects there. Uh, we know that some microbes will like um, some people more than others, um, you know, the, and, and some of them might be important in human health um, that we've discovered. But on average, the genetic component is, is really small compared to the uh, environmental one. So I think there's a lot of hit and miss going on um but you know the the twin model does show us how much is luck 
really, that uh, as we're growing up, uh, even when you come from the state, you know, you're born within an hour of, of someone else, you're going to have very different microbes. These life events, it might just be which food you had first, uh, you know, were you given the bottle first or second, um, um, you know, sitting in a different class at school, um, which, you know, did you get an antibiotic? Um, we think antibiotics are really important, and it's very hard to find any any uh, young adults who haven't been given antibiotics mm. in the modern age. And the exact timing of it, these also make a difference to your to your gut microbes. And so, from uh, a way to help influence the good microbes, what us. I can think of two different ways to begin with, but um, what's your feelings first with probiotics or prebiotics? Um, well, probiotics are uh, live microbes that um, are either in uh, natural foods, um, fermented foods, or they're as artificial capsules um, which uh, you take as supplements, and there's this huge market. And um, my view is I'm very pro probiotics in real food because we're adapted to uh, eat them, and we've probably come across them. Uh, and so if it's some nice artisan cheese or it's some yogurt or some kefir, kimchi, or kombucha, that you for the the kefirs etc they you know you've got maybe 30 different types of microbe in there um whereas and generally you know you need a small shot of that every day and you're fine that's good for, good for your health uh, for the probiotics you're having to select just a few strains of a few microbes um and that's for sort of commercial reasons these companies have come up with these strains etc and it's a bit hit and miss about whether you're going to respond to them or not because if everybody's microbiome is different um, some people you know, they might have a negative effect as well as a positive effect on balance they tend to be positive most of the trials are positive but they're not consistent in saying which ones work and which don't uh, in general they work the sicker you are um, but there's some evidence that the this, this sort of what I call the synthetic probiotics can be of some harm. For example, if you uh, if you take them just after antibiotics, there's some evidence that they slow down how quickly you recover. So it may be that the, pro, the synthetic probiotics are a bit like the the food supplements that it can maybe overwhelm the system uh, in some people. But it un unbalances the, the community. So I think we have to be a bit careful and not just say all probiotics are great. And definitely we should be um, uh, promoting real, real live food, uh, which has been tested for millennia. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, prebiotics, of course, are um, again coming to these categories of um, artificial and as part of foods uh, and they're they're basically the fertilizers so these these are the foods or chemicals that um, will enhance your existing gut microbes 
and so in a garden analogy that they are the fertilizer and again in real food absolutely 100% that's what we should be uh, eating those with high fiber those with something called polyphenols which supply energy for the microbes um, but every food is in some way a prebiotic but the um, the synthetic ones again uh, a bit hit and miss you know you take huge amounts of inulin or uh, some of these other gosses and fosses uh, which they're giving to baby formulas um, in general they work but we're seeing some rather odd results that sometimes you can overload the system and cause problems so i think before we start adding them to all um, processed foods we just need to be a bit, bit careful and do some better research mm -hmm. and here's a, a little bit of a different one for you um in this community of listeners, there's a lot of people who follow what's called the carnivore diet. I don't know if you've come across that yet. So yeah. what's your initial feelings with that? Because in that community, you know, there's a lot of debates around the fiber um, discussion. I, I, I just, I'd be interested to hear what your opinion is around um, maybe the sustainability of it or maybe why people have such a good response sometimes, you know, in, especially in the first period that they're doing it. I mean, we're in January right now. And there's a lot of people doing what they call the World Carnival Month. So they just eat meat only for 30 days and to see what, what happens. I don't know if you have an opinion on maybe the health benefits and why some yeah. people resp respond so well to that. Yeah, it's interesting. January, people choose to do the World Carnival Month and Veganuary in, in, in the UK, you know, so being vegan. Um, uh, I mean, I think in a way, carnivore diet, a bit like the keto diet, um, where which is where you have to have over 70 percent fats uh is and people is popular in a small group of people and they they do say uh that yes they feel great on starting it and i've had people coming up to me and said i've you know i've been on it for a year and i feel fantastic uh, most diets work uh, for a few months and people often will find a diet that suits them. They feel okay. They can lose weight quickly and they feel great. Um, I don't think anything should be called a diet unless you know it is sustainable over years because anyone can get rid of weight quickly, but if the body compensates and it swings back and uh, you're worse off in a year's time, then really that's an anti-diet. And that's that's what's true about 99% of these diets. Now, um, the carnivore diet, um, I'm largely against, I'm not against it short term and very happy, you know, people try these things. Um, I don't think short term there are particular problems with it, but long term, uh, there's just no diversity in there. And all our studies are showing that uh, food diversity is crucial to have a healthy gut microbiome. And if you don't have a healthy gut microbiome, you've got all these other problems that will ensue, long-term immune problems, greater risk of disease, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the carnivore diet has probably the benefit of, benefit of not having any processed foods, a lot less chemicals. So there are some plus sides to it. But unless you can make up for it with uh, a range of other plants um, to give you that diversity, then... Uh, I can't see it as sustainable for 99% of the people doing it. It doesn't mean there isn't the occasional person. You know, 
in the Dartmouth, I talk about this uh, guy who only for 30 years has only eaten cheese pizza uh, and seems very healthy. So there's always exceptions um, to these rules and, and good luck to them. But I think if I was giving advice, I would say, you know, go for diversity. I don't mind actually people eating meat. Um, and I'm definitely a good thing to avoid processed foods and a lot of these chemicals. But why give up nuts and seeds and, uh, you know, healthy plants? And, you know, when you see our ancestors, you know, they go for many months in the year without eating any meat. You know, you go to Africa, that's the way they do it. Yeah, meat can be plentiful, but it was never as plentiful as, uh, as now where, you know, you can buy meat for less than you can buy a, a pint of beer. Um, it, it's, a, it's a different world. And so that I, I don't think we evolved for that. And I don't think long-term our gut microbes will like it. And even what do you think about, I mean, I'm, we've both got maybe uh, European genetics, I assume. Um, but if you take someone with European genetics and you put them in Africa, so they're in a different latitude now or a different environment, that's going to influence their microbiome too, right? So I'm just thinking when, when people listen to this show, but they live in different parts of the world, where they live also makes a big difference as to what foods they might respond to better, do you, do you think? I think that's true, yes. because we. Um, but I mean, some of that is where you live, but also the other part is the diet. So if the uh, standard American diet has gone around the world as it has, and you have that diet, your, your gut microbes are going to be more similar to Americans uh, than to uh, other people living in perhaps more rural areas where they don't have fast food, etc. So your your microbes will follow the food largely, but there are still differences in your gut microbes. And there have been some studies of uh, migrants from uh, Korea and Vietnam to the US, and they do show that um, they start off with very different microbes, and that but it it becomes more and more like the uh, you you can't tell the difference. Uh, from the average U.S. microbiome. So, um, but we do see different types of microbes in different scenarios in Africa. The same microbe could be having a different function. That's the other weird thing we're seeing. So whether it's a slight strain difference or whatever, but something that's bad in associated with, with disease in one country could be actually associated with health in another one because of the diet, because of the environment, because of the dust. Um, so I think, you know, we don't have enough data. Most of our data is from uh, Asia and um, Europe, or European ancestry or America. We don't have that much data from all these other countries comparing rural, urban and uh, junk food and ethnic food. But yeah, um, the point is well taken. Uh, you, and that's why giving individual advice about how you can improve this particular microbe is going to vary about where, which country you're in and what your environment is. And that's going to be tricky. You know, I think that's, we can give general generic advice, um, but, you know, the ability to really say, okay, we want to boost this uh, skinny microbe. You know, you need to, this is the diet for you. I think we're, we're a long way from that. Mm. Um, at the moment and because also we don't know if they work on their own or they work as communities you know the chances are that 
they could work in slightly different communities and different uh, populations. And so it, it may be a passenger in one and a driver in the other because they, you know, the idea you can just put one microbe and sprinkle it on your cornflakes and get skinny, I think is, is, is a bit too simplistic. Mm. We've well, got to build up, build up a community, you know, like, like you would in a, if you just put one animal in the jungle and told him to get on with it, you know, he, he needs some friends, you know? Yeah. I can imagine we'll get to that day where we just sprinkle microbes on our, on our food and, you know, voila, it's all solved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, hope, hopefully we'll live to see that. It'd be fun. Yeah. Well, Tim, I just, um, we're coming up on our time here, but I think we've covered a whole bunch of things there. I mean, I could talk to you about oh, topics on this for, probably for longer. And hopefully when I, when I see you in London, I'll get to ask you a few more questions, but I just want to say thank you so much for enlightening us about everything that's happened over the years and with the current research. And, you know, I know we're right on the cutting edge of things and there's going to be more questions as we find answers and just saying, Hey, have we got the right answers or how do we, you know, we're missing all these other pieces, but it's, it's an exciting time to be living in. Um, I think so again, I want to thank, want to thank you for sharing that information. No, it's my pleasure. And, and if there are, if you've got anyone listening in the, in the U S who wants to take part in our pilot studies, um, then you know, go on the joinzoe.com website or search for the PREDICT study and uh, you know, exactly the sort of audience, the sort of you know, people who are interested in themselves and individuality that we need to really drive this to the next stage. So it'd be, uh, it's going it's to be a, a fun journey. Mm. So if, um, we mentioned your book earlier, Spoon Fed. That's coming out, I believe, in May, did you say? May 2020? May the fourteenth in in the UK. Yeah. Okay, great. So people will be able to. You can you can pre-order it already on Amazon. So. Okay, and if anyone wants to follow you or you know keep up to the science that you're doing, where's the best places to keep keep uh, following you or watching? What so, you're up to? Uh, generally, uh, Twitter. I, uh, Tim Spector on uh, Twitter is where I do most of the science and um, the the lighter stuff on on Instagram. But um, uh, so they're they're the they're the main places. Okay, perfect. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes. But again, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure.